Welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. This is the podcast designed to help you live your life enthusiastically today, tomorrow, and every other day. I am your host, Ron Kaiser. I'm a positive health psychologist, also a keynote and TEDx speaker, and author of the award-winning and best-selling book, Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm. My website is The Mental Health Gym. It is your source of information about all things related to wellness, rejuvenating, positive psychology, my own particular spin on it that I call goal-achieving psychology. And it's also the place where you can communicate with me and even suggest guests for future podcasts. As listeners to this podcast know, we always wind up having some really, really interesting guests who both lead their own lives enthusiastically and have various ways to help us to grow older with enthusiasm, with greater health and with greater connectivity and hopefully with some skills that we can use on a day-to-day basis. Today's guest is really special and somebody who I've been looking forward to speaking with. I know you're going to be really gaining a lot, both from an educational and entertainment standpoint in listening to our guest today. Douglas Noe is an award-winning author, speaker, and trainer. After 22 years as a trial lawyer, Doug became a peacemaker and mediator. Today, he helps people solve deep and intractable conflicts and teaches others to do what he does. He's an adjunct professor of law at the Pepperdine School of Law, Strauss Institute, where he teaches decision-making under uncertainty conflict. Doug is the co-founder of the award-winning Prison of Peace Project, in which he teaches murderers in maximum security prisons to be peacemakers and mediators. You know I've got to ask him about that. Uh, He has trained mediators and leaders in Europe, the Middle East, and Asia in his innovative peacemaking and mediation process. He has personally mediated over 1,500 disputes, including sexual abuse cases in the Catholic Church and criminal victim-offender cases. His honors include California Lawyer Magazine, Attorney of the Year, a Purpose Prize Fellow, and Best Lawyers of America, Lawyer of the Year. Doug has written four books, His latest, released on September 12, 2017, was entitled De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. That is something. Uh, Really looking forward to hearing about that. I know that's going to be useful. He's the creator of online video courses in legal negotiation and emotional de-escalation and has conducted dozens of webinars. His video offerings on YouTube have garnered over 87,000 views. On a personal note, Doug is a jazz violinist, aircraft and helicopter pilot, ski instructor, second degree black belt, Tai Chi master, and whitewater rafter. Don't know where he finds the time or the energy, but it's really an impressive resume. He lives with his wife in the foothills of the central Sierra Nevadas, mountains south of Yosemite National Park. Easy uh, for those of us who have visited that area, it's easy to see where somebody might 
have an orientation toward peace because that really seems like a peaceful part of the country. But at a time like this, where there's so much conflict going on in the world, I think you can understand why I might want to have Doug with us as a guest to learn a whole lot about it and to gain some ways in which we can function so effectively. So with leaving out all the rest of his very impressive resume, I'm going to introduce Doug Knoll. And Doug, welcome to Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Ron. I'm very impressed with your work. You know, we've got an aging population and to have positive psychologists helping people navigate the last 30 or 40 years of their life in a positive, enthusiastic way, I think is really phenomenal. So hats off to you. Great. Well, i uh, always happy to talk about myself, but really want to talk about all that you can contribute today. Uh, but before we even get into some of the, the practical advice kinds of things, I guess I'm kind of struck by the fact that you made the journey from being a trial lawyer to a peacemaker. Probably many of us have had the experience of uh, dealing with lawyers, either suing somebody, getting sued. Some people have gone through divorces, uh, things of that nature. From what I've been able to uh, understand, and I did, uh, did forensic psychology for a number of years, almost everybody winds up disliking the lawyer on the other side. And probably half the time, since they're not getting exactly what they want, they wind up disliking their own lawyer. So I, I guess I'm wondering, in, in a field like that, where, where there's so much conflict, how did you make the, the journey from trial lawyer to peacemaker? First of all, just by way of brief history, I grew up in Southern California, went to Dartmouth College, came back from Dartmouth, enrolled in law school, graduated with honors. And then I took a judicial clerkship in Central California because, as you note, I love the mountains and, and all the things you can do in the mountains. So I'm, I moved down here to be a big fish in a small pond rather than being a small fish in a big pond in San Francisco or Los Angeles. And uh, I joined the law firm that I stayed with for 22 years in September of 1978 and tried my first jury trial in November of 1978. And for anybody who does the work that I used to do as a brand new lawyer, trying your first case within 60 days of joining a firm is unheard of. And we were, a, that firm was a bankruptcy litigation firm. So we had a strong bankruptcy background and then a strong, very strong commercial and business trial, trial lawyer firm. And we were all trial lawyers. So I did that for 22 years. I tried over 200 cases, jury trials, arbitrations, bench trials, focused uh, on large complex cases, mostly in federal court. And along the way, in the 80s, I took up the martial arts. And by the time I turned 40, I had earned my second degree black belt, and my teacher kicked me out, saying I was too much of an asshole, too aggressive, because <laughs> I, was, I was in full trial lawyer mode in those days. <laughs> but I had, he told me to go learn Tai Chi. And the Tai Chi, it turns out Tai Chi is an extremely vicious martial art, and it is also the oldest martial art. In the Tai Chi, there is a paradox. The softer you are, the stronger you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. This did not compute. <laughs> but I practiced and trained uh, and eventually became a Tai Chi master. And one day in the late 90s, I was in the courtroom trying a case, cross-examining somebody, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? So after the trial, 
Uh, I had a vacation planned, a whitewater trip up in Idaho with a bunch of friends. And so we went up, and I spent 10 days on the Maine salmon by myself in my raft, rowing, just rowing myself through these big rapids and thinking about how many people I'd really served. And at the end of the week, I'd come to the conclusion that out of all the cases I tried and handled and settled and mediated, I'd only really served five people. And I just decided at that time, I don't want to go another 30 or 40 years and say that I've only served 15 or 20 people. That's not where my life is at. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I came back to town and drove down out of the mountains right after my vacation, and I heard a one and only public service announcement for a new master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies being offered at Fresno Pacific University, which is a West Coast Mennonite university. Didn't know anything about the Mennonites, but I knew about Fresno Pacific. And so to make a long story short, I enrolled, and I earned my master's degree, and the people my mentors opened my eyes to human conflict in ways that I had never been exposed to before. And we, I looked at human conflict from all different kinds of angles and recognized that the flaws in the legal system, that people were asking too much of our legal system, that so many, the only formal system for resolving conflict, which really isn't a conflict resolution method, is through, court tri- or through a trial. And a trial is really only a decision-making process. That's all it is. And so, and, but people are looking for justice, and the court system doesn't guarantee substantive justice. It only guarantees due process or procedural justice. And so people really get disappointed. And I, as you mentioned, I mean, my personal experience was to more than once try a case, work my butt off, win the case, only to have a client stiff me for $100,000 or so because they didn't get the result they wanted, and they wondered why the heck they should pay me a bunch of money for a right that they rightfully out, and they would stiff me. And it doesn't take many cases like that to, to burn you. And I, I did win a lot of really big cases. But you, you, as a trial lawyer knows, you put your heart into the case, and when a client turns on you like that, it's, it's pretty tough. So I talked to my partners while I was engaged in my master's studies about a new kind of practice, and they said no. So I left. I gave one week's notice, left, walked away from $10 million on the table, more money I'd put in the table in earnings and I took out, did everything I, my client, I told my clients never to do, no business plan, no savings, no nothing. <laughs> and on November 1st, 2000, opened up my peacemaking and mediation practice. In 2004, when I made a huge discovery, in my work and in your work too, active listening has been sort of a skill that people learn about how to listen. But active listening doesn't work. We all know it. Uh, using I statements, that all comes from a psychologist by the name of Roger Gordon, who in the 1960s coined the term active listening, and he was a protege of Carl Rogers, who I know you're very familiar with. And the problem was that that Gordon's work was misinterpreted by the human potential movement, and they completely perverted what he was teaching. And so now, even today, people are teaching using, what I hear you saying is X. Well, from my perspective, walking into deep conflict where people would rather shoot each other than talk, that kind of process does not work. In fact, there was no process out out there that worked effectively. So I got stuck in a mediation where this divorced couple had spent $50,000 in legal fees fighting over an $18,000 problem, you know, kind of classic, but they really hated each other. And I just listened to them scream and yell. And finally, the thought came to me, out of the blue, listen to the emotions. So that's what I had them do. And within two hours, they had completely quieted down. And at, at the end... The husband, John, looks across the table at Susan and says, Susan, that's the first time you've listened to me in 25 years. And he just started sobbing. 
Well, he cleaned himself up and they settled the case in like two minutes because it was stupid. Walked out holding hands and had lunch together. Whereas three, two and a half hours before, if there had been knives in the room, there'd be blood on the floor. My jaw dropped. So fast forward, I knew what I'd done. So I started playing with it in other high conflict cases and it worked every single time. And then in 2007, a neuroscientist at UCLA, Matthew Lieberman, published a brain scanning study that explained exactly what this was. And I read the study because I'd, I'd studied neuroscience in my master's degree. Back then, neuroscience was just getting off the ground. And I read the study and I said, this is exactly what happened in Santa Barbara. And I read the study and Lieberman had teased out through fMRI scans what was going on in the brain when you do this process known as affect labeling. It was absolutely mind-boggling and completely supported empirically what I was teaching. Well, I began to teach this mostly to mediators and judges and lawyers and was meeting a fair amount of skepticism. And so that's when 2010 rolled around and my colleague, Laurel Coffer, and I, another me a mediator in Los Angeles, had the opportunity to go into the largest, most violent women's prison in the world and start training lifers and long-termers how to become mediators and peacemakers. So we wrote the curriculum and the beginning, the first part of the curriculum was teaching them what we call reflective listening, which there are four levels of reflective listening, the deepest layer, which is known as ethic labeling or reflecting emotions. By the time we were six weeks into a 12-week curriculum, we had 300, 300 women on a waiting list. I mean, the, the, it spread through the prison like crazy what we were doing. And all these women wanted on because we were seeing incredibly transformative effects in these women, all of them who have been horribly abused. So that's how it started. And then, and then so for the la last 10 years, really, we, we were shut down. Of course, we're shut down during the pandemic, but we operated in 15 California prisons, a prison in Connecticut, 14 prisons in Greece, and have startups in Nairobi and Italy, and a bunch of other people are really wanting to get into this. So it's been extremely successful. But the in then the inmates started pestering me for a book. They said, can you please write something? Because I knew I was an author. And I said, you know, I think three books is enough. <laughs> and and they, they um, finally, I said, okay, I'll write a book. And that was de-escalate. And in de-escalate, I lay out the science of why this works, how it works, and then describe through the, through the arc of life, all the different places where you can use these skills and how you, you go about using it. And so that's today. And then what I discovered was it's not only about de-escalation, it's about how to listen other people into existence. So what I'm doing today is I have online courses where I'm teaching people how to listen to each other into existence. And the effect is to quiet down emotional people and build extreme emotional competence in the practitioner in really a matter of weeks. So that's kind of how it all started. And that's where I am today. And we got a little bit of the prison project in there. Well, that's, uh, that's so impressive. But I hear or read the title of your book. I mean, I understand de-escalate, but 90 seconds? Well, the story, there's a story there. It's actually less than 90 seconds. It's more about, more about 30 seconds. Uh, but the, my editors didn't believe that I could, we could sell a book saying de-escalate in 30 seconds. They said triple it, 90 seconds. It actually can happen very, very quickly. What happens, I can get into the science probably. That's, I really reserve that for my graduate classes. But, but in a nutshell, we are not humans are not born with emotion. We're born with something called affect, which is a, the biophysiological experience of pleasure or not pleasure, or pleasure or pain or not pleasure. 
And we have to learn how to take that, those physiological states, of which there are nine basic ones, and, and take the nuances, all the combinations and variations and intensities and durations, and attach them to words in English, in our culture, that we associate with emotions. So emotions are cognitive constructs built out of culture, experience, physiology, linguistics, all this stuff. And we build up an if it works right, which for most people it doesn't, we're supposed to build up an emotional database so that when we have a strong emotion or we're confronted with somebody who has a strong emotion, we access the database with our prefrontal cortex and we can understand what's going on. But the problem is the way our culture works and with 96% of families being emotionally dysfunctional, we, we just we don't learn these skills. We don't teach these skills to our children. So we end up with pretty stunted, stuck emotionally people, by and large. And I'm sure you've seen this in your practice all the time. That's why they come to you. It's, it's pandemic. What ethic labeling does, literally, is as the listener, I'm lending you my prefrontal cortex. I'm lending you my emotional database for the 30 seconds it takes for your prefrontal cortex to come back online and for your emotional systems to inhibit, to calm down. And that's exactly what Lieberman's study showed. When you reflect back the emotions to a person, their prefrontal cortex activates. And especially the circuits between the medial prefrontal cortex and the amygdala quiet down. In, they're inhibited. So you immediately calm down. And every human brain is hardwired to do this. So that's why this works every single time. And I've taught tens of thousands of people how to do this. And they are all amazed how well it works and that it works every single time. And so that's the basis of it all. It's all based on neuroscience. It's counterintuitive to what we think we know about emotions and feelings and affect. And it's completely counterintuitive to how we were taught to listen because what we're doing is listening to emotions, not to words. In fact, we ignore the words when we do this process. It's imperative to ignore the ignore what people are saying to do this properly. Fantastic. The I don't want to get this into a seminar on Lieberman, but he's certainly somebody who I've studied. I quote him in my book. And one of the things that uh, that he's kind of indicated is being socially connected is one of the, the really, what he calls one of the really basic human needs. Absolutely. I mean, his whole book, Social. Yeah. What's really interesting is he did this whole study on on affect, affect labeling. And he he has some some of his PhD students have done some further studies later on, but he hasn't really followed up on this. He got into, you know, because he's a social psychologist underneath his neuroscience training. And in his book, Social, he talks about that. He talks about the default mode of the brain. So we have these two systems in the brain, the task-focused system and the default system. We're in our default system all the time. That's our social system. But when we get into task focus, it's either or, they're binary. So when you're task-focused, you can't be in your social system. And so our whole educational system trains us to be task-focused, and we lose sight of the importance of being in the default mode, which is our social connection. And we're not taught how to do this in school. And these skills are teachable, but they're not innate. You have to be taught how to do this stuff. So that answers part of my question, which is if, if social connectedness is kind of a basic human need and, and characteristic, I understand that that we get task oriented and we get out of that, but but why the anger? Why is anger so prevalent in the world? Well, anger is a presenting emotion, but almost always, and there and, there, and I identify ten different kinds of anger, and underneath all anger, whatever variety or flavor of anger there might be, there are a whole pile of other emotions. So 
anger is is basically telling us that there are a lot of emotions that people are experiencing that that are not being validated that are causing the anger to be present. And so when you de-escalate somebody, the first thing you'll do is you'll reflect the anger. You'll say, oh, so Ron, you are really, really angry. You're really pissed off. But you don't stop there. You'll go deeper and you'll say something like you feel really disrespected. You feel really unappreciated. Nobody's listening to you. You're anxious and worried, even a little scared. And you feel some shame and some humiliation about what's happening. And it's really making you angry and you feel unloved and sad and abandoned. And that would be a form of abhapli. And when you do that, I'm listening you into existence. And what, what happens is, it, unconsciously, I'm causing your prefrontal cortex to change and for your emotional circuits to inhibit and calm. And you come back to calm almost immediately. Now, why is there so much anger? Because there is people are shamed. People are humiliated. People feel like they're being treated unjustly. There are people who don't feel like they're being listened to. There are people who feel emotionally unsafe. There are people who don't feel connected or they, have, or they feel worthless or they're not good enough. So all these negative emotions that have been programmed into us by our culture and by our parents and by our peers, all these negative stuff ultimately for many people culminates in an emotional state that presents itself as anger. And... You can just see it. I mean, if we look around, we look around at our, what's happening in this country right now with all this political polarization, all that anger, it's all being caused by what? Shame, humiliation, a sense of injustice, a sense of not being heard, not being validated, being made fun of, humiliated, embarrassed, a lot of anxiety, huge amount of anxiety, social changes happening so fast that for people who don't have high cognitive capacity, it scares, scares them to death because they no longer feel relevant. And if nobody's listening to them, and if you have politicians, for example, who are inflaming all of that, playing to that, playing to that fear and that anxiety, then you're going to get anger. And it's going to manifest itself in all kinds of crazy ways, like on January 6th, for example. Yeah, so interesting. So I guess I'm I'm listening to you. I'm going to be listening to the podcast. Uh, maybe too late for, for my kids. One of them has already become a lawyer. But uh, if, if I'm listening as, as a young parent, is there anything, and I'm really trying to be conscientious, any general advice as to how to raise a, a child who isn't likely to go that route? And to right. Speak? There is. Great. There is. Okay. The same technique as de-escalation. You're going to listen to your child into existence, starting, at, starting from at the very beginning, probably at birth. Obviously, you know, during pregnancy, you got to take care of yourself. No alcohol, no stress, no drugs, because starting in the second trimester is when the brain starts to form. And right around then, the neurons are growing and forming and splitting at the rate of 250,000 neurons per second. You imagine having alcohol or having stress or not having a good diet, what that does to that process, because the baby has to come out with something on the order of 9 billion neurons. Do the math. 250 million neurons a second have to subdivide in, in order to make hit that number at birth. So that's all important. And then at we start to build our emotional data field at about 18 months. So the key, the key is, is to be a, an emotional coach for your child. So if your child has a meltdown, that's the brain's, the baby's brain 
protection mechanism from doing injury, both physical and mostly physical injury to the brain. Meltdowns are all about physical protection to the brain. The body, the baby's body, so whole programming is designed to, if the baby gets overloaded, overstimulated, the meltdown protects that. So don't look at a meltdown as being something that's bad. Look at the meltdown as, thank God, we have the programming in us to protect ourselves when we're over overstimulated. And the way you deal with it is just tell the infant, the toddler, what he or she is experiencing. Oh, you're really angry. You're really tired. You're really frustrated. Use age-appropriate words and just keep doing that. And within, for children, it's even faster. I mean, it's like seconds. They'll stop crying. They'll look up and say, yeah, mm -hmm. and it's over with. You can stop tantrums in about 10 or 15 seconds if you just do this. And I have reports from parents who say that when they affect label their children, young children, the tantrums go away after about four to six months, and they never see them again. And there are studies that show that if you are affect labeling your child, validating your children from a very early age, that by age eight, they are two to three grade levels ahead of their peers, much more socially adjusted, and way emotionally mature compared to their age group. It's the most powerful thing you can do for your child, the greatest gift you can give. Well, that's a real incentive. To... Surprisingly, parents don't want to do this. Oh, it takes a little bit of effort. And I think parent is starting out angry then uh, based on their background. And, that's and, right. It's hard and... for them to get. There. But here's the cool thing. When you, when you, do the, when you do, listen to other people into existence using affect labeling, you reprogram your own brain. And you become more compassionate and patient and understanding. And you have this bubble around you that is unbelievable. And nobody can, I can have people just screaming at me and I'm calm as a cucumber. No anxiety, no fear, no defensiveness, no counteraggression, none of that stuff. It's how, it's how you build your inner peace is by using these skills because you're reprogramming your own brain. You're learning how to self-regulate. You're learning how to become emotionally, well, first emotionally aware, then you're learning emotional self-regulation and you're learning empathy all at the same time. Boy, this is related to my field and I'm learning some things for the first time. So I've got a niece who's just finishing up her PsyD and I told her, don't come to me until you're done because I don't want to fill you up with stuff that's going to get all your professors angry at you. But the problem with psychology is that, and psychiatry is that nobody, nobody's really dived deep into the neuroscience to understand the neuroscience of motion. And there is some amazing work being done right now with Lieberman and Lisa Feldman Barrett in Northeastern and a whole host of other people are just doing this amazing work. And it hasn't trickled into mainstream psychology yet. You know, mainstream psychology is still very much rooted in either cognitive behavioral psychology, which is effective, but not nearly as effective as this, or they're going back to Freud, Freudian and, and Jungian theories, which, of course, have been completely discredited by, by neuroscience. Well, you know, Freud, Freud's database was 16 upper-middle-class Viennese women. That was his data set. <laughs> and, and, you know, he never published any empirical papers. He was a genius. Don't get me wrong. Freud was way beyond his years. And even he said, I'm speculating here. Uh, science will probably prove me wrong. I'm, but he was the first guy to have this intelligence and courage to create a theory of mind. And that's the, that's the beauty of what he gave us. The problem is that everything he, he's taught is just wrong, <laughs> totally wrong, and in some, in some cases damaging. We know so much about neuroplasticity now that— Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it really uh, 
it, it'll probably take some time to catch up with, I mean, even just simple ideas of the fact that you can keep growing and changing and learning that's throughout right. the lifespan. And, and that's the beauty about getting old, is you don't have to become old. And I mean, I'm 70 years old. I'm younger than you are. And my life is just starting. I said my life started at 50. I spent 50 years getting ready to start my life. And I continue to learn. I, I mean, and it's just a joy. And I, I would encourage anybody who's getting on in your senior years, this is the time when you should really have a growth spurt. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think if if you are continuing to grow and learn and so on, I know when I walk down the street, I assume that half the people are younger are younger than me, but about half of them, and I know the percentages are wrong, I assume are older than me just by the way they carry themselves and what right. they're doing and so on. Now, I've got a, an up-to-date question that hopefully won't be uh, necessary too far into the future, but with the pandemic, and we're recording during the pandemic, a lot of us have been forced to spend time with with people who are not used to getting angry at very much if if we have safety valves like going away to work and stuff like that but i'm seeing you know more anger between spouses between family members uh, just for, it seems like being able to be to to be put together for lengthy periods of time brings out some some anger that that can be dissipated when that isn't the the case. Right. Again, I hope this won't be going on much longer, but in the short term, can you give us some advice? Here's what you do. The pandemic has really kind of changed the way that I approach teaching this stuff. I used to say, don't practice on your spouse until you've got some mastery over this. But now we're, it's like 911. We kind of have to do it. So here's, here's how to do it. Number one, if you're, if you're, if you, Somebody makes a snarky remark. You or your partner make your partner makes a snarky remark. The first thing, you, or even gets emotionally upset. Number one, do not try to problem solve. Don't get defensive. Don't get aggressive. Don't try to justify or explain. You're only going to do one thing, and it's three steps. Step number one is ignore the words. Doesn't matter what they say. You've heard it all before anyway, so there's nothing nothing new here. Number two, just sit in silence for a moment and let your brain unconsciously read the emotional data fields of the person who's upset. Your brain has the innate capacity to do this. We don't use this capacity because we live in a culture that eschews emotion. It says emotions are bad or evil or irrational. But we have the capacity nevertheless. And so just allow yourself, your brain, to figure it out. And it'll do it fast, like within a second. And then as those emotions come into your consciousness, just reflect back to the speaker the emotion with a simple use statement. You're really angry. You don't feel listened to. You feel really unappreciated. You feel disrespected. You're sad, or you're anxious, or you're afraid, or you feel like you're not being heard. You feel unappreciated and unloved, and you feel abandoned. Whatever the emotions are that come into your head, just reflect them back. And you're gonna watch for three things, Number one, or four things. Number one, a nodding of the head up and down. Two, a verbal response like exactly or yeah, duh. Three, you're going to get the dropping of the shoulder. And four, you're going to get a relax. These are all involuntary relaxation responses. You're going to get a deep sigh. And that's when you know you've got it right. Now, if you get the reason that I don't want partners to do this with each other until they've gotten some training is because this creates a new level of vulnerability and intimacy. 
And many relationships have implicitly negotiated the level of intimacy that they'll all tolerate because a lot of people never experienced emotional safety. And so they built up walls around them and they're emotionally defensive so that they don't get hurt because they were so horribly abused as children. And I'm saying horribly abused by the parents who love them because there's this thing called emotional invalidation that happens to every child that's incredibly abusive. And even the best meaning parents do it and they don't even know they're doing it. So as a result, the children learn how to protect themselves. The brains protect them by building up walls around them so they become emotionally unavailable or emotionally shut down. So if you get pushback, it's because you've like you're a superhero that's punched through that wall and now you're right up next to the really private part of your partner. And that can be super scary. So you have to do this with, with care and caution. But when you do it and do it correctly, you will de-escalate the situation. You will get a deep expression of gratitude. Thank you for listening to me. Thank you so much. That was, that was just, you really made me, you really validated me called listening other people into existence. And that'll make you feel really good yourself. And it's a self-affirming practice because the more you do it, the more grateful people are, the better you feel about yourself and the more you want to do it because it feels really good to, to listen to other people into existence. So I would suggest practicing with the children first, not, teenager, not teenagers, but if you've got children at home from say two years to probably seven or eight years old, perfect, they're perfect to practice on. Nine, 10, you can probably get away with it. When they start to get prepubescent, 11, 12, in that age, don't try it until you get some more experience, until you get some practice. I used to say the best place to practice was at Starbucks because you could go in in the morning and get to the barista who's taking credit card in order and say, you look really happy today. Totally safe environment, right? So you practice affect labeling, a positive affect label, and you're going to get everybody in line behind you mad because that barista is going to open up on you and tell you his or her whole life story because they were, it felt so good that someone finally validated and recognized them. Well, we can't do that in the pandemic. So you're stuck doing it at home. It just be just use, be very cautious and conservative in the beginning. But you will see that you don't have to take it from me. I tell all my students, here's how you do it. Don't believe me. Test it. you got a lot of lab rats around you. Test it on all the lab rats, all these human beings that are around you. They're all your lab rats. And just test it. Be an experimenter and see what happens. Be sure to use a you statement. You do not want to say something like, what I hear you, what I think you're feeling is sad. Wrong. That will not work. <laughs> That's that old active yeah, listening stuff and, or, or Rosenberg's NVC, which has proven not to work, of course. NBC people want to kill me, but I mean, I've gone to the courses. The reason that I developed what I developed is because I was looking for methodologies that would work in high-conflict situations. NBC is not one of those techniques that works. There's been a lot of critiques of it in the literature. So, so, yeah, just remember, ignore the words, read the emotional data field, reflect back the emotion with a simple use statement. Just do that, and the magic will start to flow. Yeah, and can I assume that it's like every other skill that uh, we're going to screw up sometimes sure. as we try it. And, and that's okay. Yeah. It's okay to screw up. In fact, you can, you can, the beauty about this is you can never be wrong. So supposing I say to you, Ron, you're upset. And I say, Ron, you're really angry. And you say, no, I'm not angry. I said, oh, Ron, you're really frustrated. Yeah, I'm really frustrated. <laughs> and you don't feel like you're listened to and you feel anxious. Yeah, I'm really anxious. And you're really mad. Yeah, I'm really mad. <laughs> All right, what's going on? Well, they're not even aware of their anger. They're, because remember, they're alexithymic. They don't have the ability to process their own emotions 
because their prefrontal cortex is shut down. So they get into this condition known as alexithymia, the inability to understand and, and articulate your own emotions. And what we're doing is lending our prefrontal cortex. They don't, the speaker doesn't recognize it at first, so you have to kind of cycle through it a few times until they do get it. And even if you are wrong, it doesn't matter. They'll say, oh, Ron, you're really angry. No, I'm not really angry. I'm frustrated. Oh, you're really frustrated. Yeah, okay. Just repeat back what they say. Really interesting and, and really generalizable to lots of other things. I mean, I, with a lot of my patients, I mean, they, That's right. they won't own the concept of depression, for example, that, you know, that people have told them they're depressed. Now, I'm not depressed. Uh, you know, I, these other things that are going wrong. If I was feeling better, if I didn't have headaches, if I didn't, if this didn't right. happen to me, I optimistic I am. So they're, you know, and when they talk about having headaches and somatic pain, and they're not associating it with emotions, they have very low self-awareness. They're at about a level two instead of being at a level five, which is high emotional awareness. So you say, oh, you're really sad. You're feeling a lot of grief. You feel really lonely. You feel abandoned, not loved. You feel pretty worthless. Just do stuff like that. They will process that. They won't process, oh, you're depressed because depression is a pejorative and they don't want to be labeled with a pejorative mental illness. But if you label their emotions, there's nothing wrong with that. That's terrific. Just... Uh, there's so much I've learned from this. I usually, as I approach the end of a session, I uh, a lot of times I'll tell a guest, I can't promise you that I won't invite you back. In your case, I can promise that I will because I've still got, you know, lots and lots of questions that uh, we haven't gotten into the area of leadership and stuff like no. that, that in some other areas with respect to we got to have your audience take a poll and ask them how many people want to have me back and have them email you or text you or comment on your podcast or whatever you're on the, on the website, wherever you post this thing. Find out, find out. I'm happy to come back. You know, obviously I'm passionate about this. I can talk about it for hours. It's my whole, it's my life calling. That's so, obvious. Uh, and unfortunately I've got to be the traffic cop with the, the time. <laughs> of course. No, but I do want to, uh, I mean, this has been so enlightening. I want to, uh, and with having you, first of all, go over what what products are available to people who who you're not teaching in a in a class, and how do people get in touch with you and find out more? Sure. So my website is dougnoll.com, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. My email address is doug at dougnoll.com. I'm a one-man shop. I don't have an entourage. You're not gonna get some customer support person, I answer all my own emails. On the website, you will find links to my fourth book, Deescalate, but you can buy that anywhere. Uh, if you buy it on my website, then you also get the opportunity to get in some deeply discounted, my de-escalation, online de-escalation course and workbooks and stuff like that. So if you're into learning on your own, um, that's the way to go. And what I recommend is that you buy the course. I think the, the de-escalate course is 198 bucks. But you, you do it with somebody else. So the two of you can split the cost. Do the Because there are a lot of role plays and exercises I take you through in the course. And this is a skill. So you got to practice this skill. The web, my website also has many, many articles on this topic, de-escalation, as well as emotional competency. And I also have two courses, Developing Emotional Competency and Advanced Emotional Competency, which teach you how to use these skills to develop your own emotional competency. And I distinguish emotional competency from emotional intelligence. You can't learn emotional intelligence. Sorry to tell you that. Emotional intelligence is a 
test. It's like me telling you I can teach you IQ. I can't do that. But I can teach you emotional competency, which if you raise your emotional competency, you will score highly on emotional intelligence assessments. And the commercial world has got that all wrong. But that's, that's, a, that's a discussion for another day. So DougNoll.com, tons of, tons of resources. And my YouTube channel, Douglas Knoll, um, I probably got 60 or 70 videos up talking about all of these different topics in different, in different ways and from different orientations. So there's plenty out there. Just go look. And like I said, if you have questions, give me, give me a holler on email. That's wonderful. And I can uh, tell the listeners that uh, we will have all the contact information in the show notes. So if you're driving, you don't need to stop and, you know, put it into your phone. We'll have it in the show notes. And once again, I mean, this has been such a great pleasure for me, been such a great learning experience for me. I'm confident I'll be talking with you again. Okay, Ron, I'll look forward to your email. (laughs) Learned a whole lot. I want to wish you continued success on this very, very important, uh, you know, topic. I think all we have to do is go back to the election and the aftermath and right. what's going on almost every place else in the world to realize how needed this is. And really impressive that uh, you, you didn't choose the easiest place in the world, uh, prison, to uh, to help develop the program and, and make it successful. So been very enlightening. Thanks very much for honoring us us with your appearance. Look forward to speaking with you again. And this has been Rejuvenating with Dr. Ron Kaiser, the podcast that's designed to help you live your life enthusiastically and hopefully with less anger now that we have some ideas along those lines. Our guest has been Doug Knoll, who wrote the book on the subject, and I hope you'll uh, be in touch to get the book, his courses, and lots of other information that can be very helpful to you in de-escalating and making this world a better place as well as a more enthusiastic place. So until next time, again, this is Dr. Ron Kaiser signing off. I hope you will contact me about this podcast episode as well as downloading it listening to it a few times, rating and commenting upon it. And of course, visit our website, The Mental Health Gym. If you haven't yet picked up Rejuvenating the Art and Science of Growing Older with Enthusiasm, I hope you'll do so. And most importantly, I hope you'll be back next week for another interesting, informative, and excellent guest. It'll be a job to top, Doug, but... uh, We'll see what we can do. So till then, stay safe and look forward to seeing you next week.